You're listening to Words of Wisdom with Shelby podcast, where we talk to seniors within our community who have nothing but great stories to share from a lifetime of experience, wisdom to pass along, and knowledge that can make a difference in your life. When we're finished, don't forget to call your grandma or any older adult in your life to brighten their day. episode of Words of Wisdom with Shelby podcast, we get to sit down with Dr. Michael Cohen, age 79, turning 80 this March. He is known as Pop Pops to his five grandchildren, one of which is my good friend, Alex, who joined us for this interview, and you will hear her jump in from time to time. Pop Pops won the Island Medal of Honor for Achievements in the field of medicine in 2019. He still practices medicine, has been extremely successful with fundraising. He currently teaches a course at Columbia Medical School, is a lover of poetry, you'll hear him tell a few poems, and is constantly learning. Despite all of his accomplishments, he is the most humble person you'll come across. Some words of wisdom passed along that you will hear him tell us is to learn to listen. Whether you're a physician or not, he said the most and the more that you can learn about a person where they are in life, the more appropriate your advice will become. He strongly believes that you can stay young by continuing to learn every day and getting insight into other people's journeys on this planet. Truly the most humble man, he believes in service. When it's all over, in the end, it's what you did for others that matters the most, Michael says. Enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will see you at the end. So, Michael, what when were you born? Uh, March 1941, nine months before Pearl Harbor Day, nine months before the entry, the beginning of World War II. 1941. So how old does that make you? Uh, that means this coming March, I will be 80, four score <gasps> years old, four score, yes. Amazing. Wow. And so you, you were born know. in March, wait, you, you wouldn't know. <laughs> and you were born, where were you born? Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. The biggest, the biggest Southern city in the United States at the time, I would call it very Southern in many, many ways. Yes. I love it. And what was it like? Did you grow up there or did you grow up uh, somewhere else? Grew up, grew up in Baltimore and Mm -hmm. stayed in Baltimore through all of my uh, formal education, college for two years. I was in the, uh, I was in the second two, five accelerated Johns Hopkins medical school program. So I graduated high school at 17 and at 19, I was in Johns Hopkins Medical School. So there I was, Doogie Hauser of the day. If you don't know about Doogie Hauser, was this young, young kid, MD, portrayed in early television in the 1950s. Neil Patrick Harris, right, Pop Pop? Yes. <laughs> so there I was at 19. So by the time I came to my pediatric rotation in my first years in medical school, I was the same age as my pediatric patients. Always well, thought I was gonna be a pediatrician, but th- having to take care of young children at that time where most of them had forms of leukemia that couldn't be treated, it was 
just so emotionally overwhelming at the time that uh, I couldn't emotionally bear that experience mm-hmm. and gave up pediatrics uh, to go into adult medicine. Okay, and what led you into the medical field? Anything um, specific? So most people, this is an interesting story. My my dad, my father, who was born in Odessa, and uh, came to the United States at United States at age five. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, he his greatest dream for me. We were really good, close buddies growing up, and his greatest dream for me was to be a major league baseball player. So we shared the love of baseball growing up. He was also a great, great reader being Mm -hmm. partially deaf. uh, uh, He read uh, voraciously, something that I've always done. He recited poetry, something that I learned to love during my years. I don't know if Alex has talked to you about that, about my yeah, no, well, she hasn't. Be, maybe, maybe you can do a poem for us. You can do. Oh, I could do two and <gasps> two and a half hours. Two and a half hours of William Butler Yeats, the no, Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize in Literature, nineteen twenty-three. William Butler Yeats, Nobel Prize in Literature. Yes, Ireland's the great man of Ireland. I got interested in him in the nineteen eighties to one of my patients, who said. Eh, the, the, the story, apocryphal story of my life is my father used to come home from work every day. He worked a block or two from the grave of Edgar Allan Poe and he loved Edgar Allan Poe. So he would recite Annabelle Lee and the Raven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the story in my family is I, I knew five Edgar Allan Poe poems before I went to school, before I could read. Probably mm-hmm. it's what made through the auditory connection. Listening to poetry was 30, 45 years later when I got into Yeats poetry, it was very easy for me to memorize Yeats poetry. Uh, and after in a, one day in the 1980s, one of my retired Irish school teachers by the name of Brian O'Brien, I kid you not. If you were mm-hmm. Mrs. O'Brien, now would you name your son Brian, so that he would be known as Brian O'Brien throughout his life. He said, "Eh, Dr. Cohen, take down that uh, poem and get into some serious poetry, why don't you? And I said, Mr. O'Brien, who would that be? He said, well, William Butler Yeats, of course. I said, do you know one, Mr. O'Brien? He said, well, certainly I do. My favorite is an Irish airman foresees his fate. And he recited the poem and I loved it. And as soon as he left the office, I ran down the hall and the first five Irish people, nurse, secretaries, doctors, I said, William Butler Yeats, William Butler Yeats, name a poem. Three of the five named Ode to a Grecian Urn, which is not Yeats, but Keats, only one letter difference, but a complete difference in their style Keats was a hundred years earlier, British. Yeats was an Irish national poet um, his whole life. I will recite for you since you asked. My favorite is considered the greatest now. Yeats, by the way, is 1869 to 1935, half of his life in the 19th century, half of his mm-hmm. life in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And he wrote the, the most beautiful romantic poems of the late 1800s. 
19th century, but he never stopped changing the way he wrote, even though he was the most famous poet in the English language by 1910, 1915, wins the Nobel Prize in Literature and still strives and continues to change, not to be dated, to keep doing. Most of over the 20 years in which I became to love Yeats so much and understood how little Irish Americans understood about their greatest poet, I started throwing on the morning of St. Patrick's Day, March, every March 17th in the morning, I invited the Irish of Columbia Presbyterian to a local pub, Coogan's pub, and through a free breakfast, hired Irish harpists, bagpipers, and I was the MC since none of them seemed to be able to do it. I, I found a book that year and sent out the best Love Yates poems and sent it out to 25 Irish people I knew who work as secretaries, nurses, doctors. And they came back months later. I said, of all the Irish gifts to the world, there's no gift that's greater than the gift of their great writers, poets, and dramatists. If you can memorize one poem by St. Patty's Day, I'll throw you a free, give you a free breakfast on St. Patty's Day morning. One of the secretaries came by my office a couple months later, a month before, February, uh, shaking and she said, Dr. Cohen, we're reading the poems and we love them, but we can't memorize any. Could we still have the free breakfast if we come and read a poem? And for 20 years, for 20 years, I thought it got bigger and bigger and bigger. It was covered by, I had a big article in the New York Times 10 years later of unusual ways to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. In the closing line of that article in the New York Times, the week before St. Patrick's Day of, I don't know, 2005, 2007, under my name, it showed they came with photographers the week before and took a picture of me holding a Yates book, reading in front of Coogan's restaurant. And it was all about unusual ways of celebrating St. Patrick's Day. But they, the punchline of the article was, only in America could you have in the middle of Spanish Harlem have a Jewish cardiologist recite to a bunch of, of Catholics from an Irish Protestant poet, only in America. And so I love I, that. I will give you what you can have it back later again. I'll give it to you more exactly. But here is what I, I meant. I studied Yeats, I was in my 50s then for the next 15, 20 years. And of the four libraries in my home, the library that is expanding the most rapidly is the library of Irish poetry and Irish literature. I've gotten into many of them. And I've appeared on the stage a couple of times at the Irish Repertory Theater in New York, reciting, reciting Irish poetry on the, uh, on the birthday when they celebrate Yeats every spring. And I've been on, uh, in between uh, Marion Seldes and Brian O'Byrne. Brian O'Byrne, who won an Academy Award for his uh, portrayal of a priest in Doubt, the movie Doubt, D-O-U-B-T. It was on in the theater and then it became a movie. Well, here goes what my academics think is the greatest poem of the 20th century because it best reflects a atmosphere, a century of violence and bloodshed and warfare. So mm -hmm. it's not a happy poem. 
but it's late Yates. It's the epitome of late Yates. Notice no the rhyme and the meter and the sweet little romantic poetries that I could recite for you for the next hour are gone. And instead we have the second coming. Yates writes this right after World War I. He believes in it, World War I, the carnage after the Pax Victoriana, the long peace of Queen Victoria's reign, that this uh, massive carnage of 40 million people that produced nothing but would produce World War II, the war to end old wars. It is the second coming and the second coming is not good, but it's evil. It goes something like this, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcons cannot hear the falconer, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood dim tide is loosed and all around the ceremonies of innocence are drowned, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. No sooner are these words out, but a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a giant shape with lion body and head of a man, a gaze as blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs while all about it reel the shadows of indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep are vexed a nightmare by a rocking cradle. What rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. When I recite this to my cardiology fellows, I tell them if they listen carefully the next time and are able to identify the title of the five major modern books that take their titles from lines of that poetry, they will get extra credit on their cardiology <laughs> intensive care unit rotation. That was what, amazing. Uh, that's just one of the two and a half hours that I memorized. Compare that to, 35 years before, 35 years before, he wrote something like this. How could the same man write it? Alex probably knows this. When I play on my, this is, my fiddle in Dooney. This is, yeah. When I play on my fiddle in Dooney, the folks dance like a wave of the sea. My cousin is the priest in Kilvarnet. My brother in Mahorogui. I passed my brother and cousin. They read from their books of prayer. I read from my book of songs that I bought at the Sligo Fair. And when we come at the end of time to Peter sitting in state, he'll smile on us three old spirits, but he'll call me first through the gate. For the good are always the merry, save by an evil chance. And the merry love the fiddle and the merry love to dance. And when the folk up there spy me, they'll all come up to me with the here is a fiddler of Dooney and will dance like a wave of the sea. Wow, so beautiful. That's amazing. So I have a few questions for you. I mean, that was amazing, your your poetry. How How is it that you have been able to, I mean, one of the things that Alex told me was that you were ex in extremely sharp and your memory is amazing do you ha how have you been able to stay so sharp 
Well, I mean, since I'm 19 years old, I've been either studying to be a doctor. Since 1965, I've been a doctor. I've always been at a university medical center. And university medical center, you're continually teaching your students. So you learn from being around, I'm around young people all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Medical scientific knowledge doubles every five years, it's estimated. So mm -hmm. that, and that's just one of the indications of that is the incredible scientific achievement of having uh, in seven months, eight months, having achieved vaccines that are five, six, seven vaccines. When the last vaccines, we go back 10 years, it would, it would take seven years to develop a vaccine and then five mm -hmm. years and then four. And now, so in, even in virology, molecular biology, medical knowledge keeps going on. And I've been surrounded my whole life. I've been surrounded by in academic settings, even though I'm a doctor, what I do if you ask for one word to describe me, I would say physician is the one word that comes better than any other one word. But I really have a hunger for learning history, biography, poetry, literature. Now back to Words of Wisdom with Michael. Interestingly enough, um, it wasn't my parents who put pressure on me to be a doctor at the time, um, but it was really, it turned out to be uh, my pediatrician who took care of me until through age 19, until I got to medical school, who was a pediatric nephrologist. He was on the staff at Johns Hopkins Medical School, as it turned out to be. I'm sure I was one of his first patients that he took care of from birth to age 19, who then got into Hopkins Medical School at 19, so he could teach me in medical school. Very dedicated. When I was 11 or 12 years old, I had the only illness. I had a really bad pneumonia that went on for like two weeks. I had fever every day. And I could mm -hmm. see how anxious my mom and dad were. And he would come at the end of every day. He would examine me with his stethoscope, tap out the and listen for breath sounds and then give me another shot of antibiotics in the backside. And then I would watch him reassure my mom and dad that I was gonna be fine. And I got better and I said, what a wonderful thing to be able to do to help people to assuage their anxiety, to help their, and it was he, John Askin was, and then I, I got to see him and meet him as a teacher when I got to Hopkins Medical School, uh, you mm -hmm. know, was when I was 11, but by the time I was 19, I was in medical school. So eight years, nine years, 10 years later, it was really, he is a role, he was the role model. My, my dad, who was trying to make me a baseball player. Right, right. <laughs> so you wanted to get involved in helping others service for other people and being that person who can say, everything's gonna be fine. Absolutely. And what I found in a lifetime, Shelby, that is if you're really honestly in your gut, if that is really what drives you, it never gets old. It never stops. It's doing the New York Times crossword puzzle, solving it 12 times a day with a human life at the end of it, instead of the sterile accomplishment of completing the crossword puzzle there's a human life at the end of this crossword puzzle. And it's, it's a very, very difficult intellectual jump because it's open problem solving. 
in a single human being, anything is possible. No, a lot of doctors who go in just are too frightened by the open-ended, any possibility with the death in the end. They're much happier in a laboratory setting. You won an Ellis Island Medal of Honor yes, in yes, 2019. Yes, it was a, a, a congressional, I had won several career achievement awards at Columbia Presbyterian, the only that are given by the Alumni Society for Career Achievement in Medicine. And then a couple of my patients who had won the award before submitted my name and somebody on the staff looks up to see whether it's reasonable. And then they said, you have been nominated. If you want to get the award, you have to fill out this three page thing telling us what you've done that you think uh, uh, merits your consideration for it. It's, it's, it's a congressional gold medal like the, the president gives out gold medals. This is a congressional gold medal. What are some things that you have achieved throughout? I mean, this being one of them, but what are some other things that you have achieved throughout your professional experience that, um, I don't know, big things that kind of stand out to you or things that you've learned throughout your time and as a, a doctor physician that you said? Um, I, I've participated in, I've been very, very successful fundraiser, it, it turns out, so that a group of my patients got together uh, 10 or 15 years ago and wanted to make sure that I didn't leave me medicine prematurely and gave money to the medical school to give me an endowed professorship. So I have had an endowed chair in medical education. And although Columbia Medical School has 220 or 230 endowed chairs, it's the first endowed chair in the School of Medicine at Columbia, which is, Columbia is 250 years old because Columbia started as King's College in the colonies before this. It's King's College where Alexander Hamilton went. That's where Alexander Hamilton was a student at King's College at Columbia. Uh, it was the King's College, like everything else in the colonies that would belong to the King, right? Until <laughs> 1776. Thank goodness Alexander Hamilton was there in New York because that's where George Washington got to see him during the Battle of New York and said, who is that amazing young artilleryman over there directing artillery fire? Bring him to me. And that was the start of Alexander's, Hamilton's great career. It happened just That's by so serendipity. Cool. So uh, I raised money for, to get, as I helped to bring my very close medical school classmate, Myron Weisfeld, Mike Weisfeld, who was the head of cardiology at Johns Hopkins still at the time, who graduated at Hopkins with me, came to Columbia for two years, then he went back to Hopkins and became a world famous figure in developing um, uh, a CPR. He's, he's responsible for the miniaturization of the, all the defibrillators that you see in, in airports, bus terminals, da 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 da. And wow. in order to bring him our chairman of the Department of Medicine had quit and said, I can't do this. A young man and it sent a signal all over academic medicine that Columbia was unrulable. And I knew my friend down at Hopkins, head of cardiology would make a great head of medicine. So I called him the next day 
And he said, oh, I can't go through it. I said, you don't have to worry about anything. I'll do everything. Just tell me you'll consider it and I'll bring people together and raise money for you. You come up and look at our place and tell us what you need to be an effective chairman. And among the many things that we helped get for him, I ran the series, I did it myself, ran a series of meetings in the middle of New York City to raise money so we could triple the cath lab size, bring in more angioplasty people. And one of the things we had to do is rebuild our cancer research facilities, which, had, and in doing that, um, I was a liaison between Hopkins and Columbia bringing their young new uh, research cancer fellows from Hopkins who didn't have a place for them and Hopkins bring them to Columbia. And one that I brought and then found one of my patients to support his work for five years is a fellow named Ramon Parsons. One year after he came from Hopkins to Columbia, his lab was next door to the lab of somebody working on a similar oncogene, a gene that causes cancer, in a totally different field, in the skin. He was, he was studying it, I don't even remember, oh, for the colon, he was studying it, he was studying colon cancers, but it, it turns out it's the same oncogene in a different organ, it'll cause cancer wherever that the organ is that that gene takes, but mutation takes place. Uh, within one year of coming to Columbia, he discovered what turns out to be the most important oncogene in BRCA2, BRCA2 breast cancer, which is breast, ovarian, very, very ubiquitous. And so he used my, I supported him and as well as several others for years and years. And eventually he became, after 10 years, he went to Mount Sinai. He's the head of cancer research at Mount Sinai. And so I've helped to start a, a number of careers through my fundraising efforts. And when our last mega donor, Dr. Roy Vagelos came in 10 years ago and offered to give us $100 million if we would raise $250 million for that, he appointed me as the head of the, of the uh, I became professor of the, of the professor's uh, uh, chief of the so-and-so was, so I went, I spent the next two or three years going from department to department to department and said, neurosur brain surgeons, heart surgeons, send me your two most grateful patients. And we had a series of lunches, me and the patients and Dr. Roy Vagelos. And out of that came we raised $250 million more and Roy Vagelos built just uh, in 2016, it opened up a brand new medical school. We rebuilt the medical school and he was so pleased with that. He's now 90 years old. He was so pleased with that, that two years later, he gave the medical school $400 million in December 2018 or December 2019 so that all future classes, all future classes at Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, the medical school, will be loan free. And that means tuition, room, board. So unless you come from an extremely wealthy family, no longer will you have any debt related to medical school. And that's wonderful, Shelby, because wow. that yeah. allows the people to do, you want to be a pediatrician? 
you could be a pediatrician, but if you try to be a pediatrician, you start out a quarter million dollars in debt, you're going to wind up a quarter million dollars in debt 50 years later, or a primary care doctor. Much of medical financing is uh, inappropriate. We reward the two groups of doctors that we don't need anymore. America has two thirds of all the plastic surgeons in the world and two thirds of all the sports medicine orthopedists. Yes, we need some, but we don't need two thirds of all to bob, to bob noses of people in the United States. What we need is 20 times more primary care doctors, 20 times more pediatricians, oncologists, nurses, respiratory therapists, not, we don't need these super specialists who play on your, your beauty wanting to be beautiful. Most people are unhappy anyway, after their noses bob. It's still not perfect, right? Quote unquote. Mm -hmm. No, perfect. No, so true. They're constantly, people are just trying to seek, seek out more and more. Yeah, yeah, yes. Youth or beauty or it's, it's inside. It's not, it's not out mm -hmm. there. That's amazing. Wow. So you've really made a difference in the medical field. Uh, I, I think I have. And much with my chair that I have for the last 10 or 12 years, constant uh, enhancement of the of uh, medical education, emphasizing always, always the first thing I emphasize. And I, I love to do this because I, as in the new medical curriculum, because of one of the problems I alluded to early, Shelby, that is medical information doubles every five years. If medical information keeps doubling and doubling and doubling and doctors wanna get out sooner and sooner and sooner, how can you fit massive, massive amounts of knowledge in three years or four years. The answer is you can't. When you get out of medical school, you just had your little toe on your non-dominant foot dipped into, and medicine is something you do every day. And I learn from every day, 55 mm -hmm. years later, you still learn every day. You learn something new every day. Emphasize, but my course, which is called the course that I've had for 12 years and my chair, I will pick the next person when I retire who will continue to treat this bedside clinical problem solving is about solving problems at the bedside. One human being called the physician to the other human being, the patient. It is not an adversarial system. Rather, we are partners in resolving this problem. The only point of which is to make you healthier, get, get you better. That's the only thing that should be the goal of that. Not money, it's hard enough to do if it's pure altruism, one human being helping another human being. But the more you try to have insurance dominated, tell you what you can do, can't do, the more you skew it and make it less appropriate and less appropriate and less appropriate, so. What are a few things that you could teach listeners from this course or from um, just even Alex had mentioned that you have, you always have a, a knack for sitting down and meeting people and always remembering things about them, like a true kind of gifting, connecting with people. What's, what are a few lessons that you could give listeners related to learn, learn, learn to learn to listen and learn to put together the human being. We don't 
treat mitral valves. We don't treat nosebleeds. We don't treat dislocated hips. We treat people. Mm -hmm. And the more you understand about the person, where they are in their life, the more appropriate your advice will become, the quicker you'll come to the correct answer. It isn't, most of the terrible mistakes I see are because uh, it, it's, it's been studied, it's called premature anchoring. They say an average physician in an average meeting with a patient is about 35 seconds into you're telling them what's the matter. Oh, I had the headache yesterday and then I had a nosebleed. 30, and it's a long story which you haven't gotten to yet. And the doctor is already at an answer. And when the doctor, even subconsciously, if the doctor reaches subconsciously an answer, he will psychologically shut out other data that as a patient keeps talking or when he does the exam, he's less likely to pay attention some to something that is not an indication of that first answer, but that it could be something else. You're, you're low, it's just a human trait. And he will magnify those parts of the history and exam that magnify the chance he's correct and minimize the data that suggest his preliminary diagnosis uh, is incorrect. You'll, you'll just ignore it. Mm -hmm. much as media often suppress news that they don't like and hype up news that they do like. That's mm -hmm. a human trait. It's not media, physicians. It's human. It's a human beings trait. Premature anchoring, uh, reaching diagnosis too fast, trying to see when insurance companies tell the other doctors who are working with me, you got to see 12 patients an hour. How can you cannot see 12 patients? That's five minutes for a patient. By the time my patient, five minutes, they're on their first sentence of telling me what began to go wrong eight months ago. And they you can't learn anything in five minutes. And to prejudge it and to limit it makes you ineffective. And if you're ineffective for any one patient, you're ineffective for all of them, none of them get the appropriate. So you may be smart as can be, but you're, you're loading your, we're not, we're not, we're not there to maximize HMO profit. I'm not, I don't care what the stock price is of the HMO. The insurers are the tail that wags the dog. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be the insurers. This is simply a, a human to human interaction that goes back 4,000 years, the earliest human interaction where one human being helped another human being. The pharaohs in the papyrus scripts, we learn about the doctors, what they did in the time of Ramesses II, et cetera, what the doctors did then. So human beings in the Egyptian civilization, much less the Greek in the time of Hippocrates, knew about, you know, tried to have doctors helping patients. Mm -hmm. It's about that connection. And do you apply that in your everyday, even outside of the medical field, just any human to human connection? Absolutely. Magnify those. It's what, when it's all over, it's what you, it's what you did for other people that matters the most. And that's what we care about the most. And uh, that's it. Medicine is, 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 it is a, if that's not 
patient loaded for service, then you're doing something wrong. You're in the wrong field. You're in the mm -hmm. wrong field. And the patients who are unhappy with medicine or patients who they don't really care about people. Sometimes you can not care about people, but just be a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant investigator and become so fascinated by the secrets. I don't put that down at all. There's nothing wrong with that. The bad mm -hmm. stuff happens when you're not, don't really care about people very much and your job is taking care of sick human beings, you're more likely to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, you know, I've taken care of a dozen Nobel Prize winners, presidents of three different nations. Can't tell you who the, their name, many, many people who you know, mm -hmm. including- Popoff is very good about the HIPAA violations, right, Popoff? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I can't tell you the- Excellent. <laughs> yeah, most, one day, uh, one day I'll be able to call you back and tell you about. I take Ooh, care. Of that would be cool. The most senior Nobel laureate of all times, a man who won a Nobel Prize in physics at age 26 and is now 88 years old. So he's lived 62 years after winning the Nobel Prize in physics. So nobody, no one has lived. That's doesn't mean he's the oldest person to win a Nobel Prize, but he's the most senior. That is nobody has won a Nobel Prize and then lived six decades after that. Wow, that's amazing. So do you have anything else to, to share with anybody who might listen in on this episode? Any words of wisdom throughout your experience in life? Um, just any advice or whatever comes to your mind? Uh, well, the, I think that we've skimmed the most important two or three. One is continue to learn every day. If you continue to learn something new every day, you stay young every year. You're, you're changed by what you learn and you remain young because you're still learning to try to get insight into other people's journeys on this planet. Mm -hmm. The other is that the most rewarding thing I've done in my lifetime is take care of other human beings. That, that it's that taking care of even through this COVID and the isolation, et cetera, being on the phone with them. I understand my patients so much better than anybody else. I'll know when it's COVID and when it's not, who's the more anxious, who's gonna call me with a runny nose, that it's seeking to make others better, that you yourself gain the, the most calm and peace and satisfaction, or at least in my lifetime, it's never gotten old either of those two, things, trying to help other people and trying to learn, never stop learning. That's amazing. Wow, you're an extraordinary person. Um, <laughs> he really is. And I'm he's very, very so. a humble. And that's the most incredible part. That's the most incredible part is he, I think sometimes uh, takes for granted just how extraordinary he is because he doesn't see it that way. He's just um, doing exactly what he feels called to do that he is inspired. This world is lucky to have you. What do you think people have learned throughout this time with the virus and being, you know, distanced or, or is there anything that you've learned or you've talked about with people? Yes, I think what you try to, again, you have to, to try to get the best out of this difficult times of isolation and isolating and, you know, is, it's a time to reflect, use the time of isolation to reflect and read and 
learn and try to get some perspective of your current where you are now and where, but still every day I'm on the phone or going down I'm still down there practicing once or twice a week I go into the hospital of the city and uh, can't wait to get can't wait to get my vaccine <laughs> 5,000 5, pe 5, people I'm looking forward to you getting your vaccine too <laughs> Our 5,000 of our frontline workers were vaccinated last week, just last week with the Pfizer thing. It's, they're all great. All the vaccines will be very, very, very effective. I love it. Yep, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's been yes, hard it for people to stay positive. You know, there's, yeah. I, I feel like yeah. it's been, it's been a very trying time, but it's important yeah. to try and stay positive throughout all of this. And like you said, gain some perspective and reflect. Yes. It's mm -hmm. the best you can do. Mm -hmm. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Michael. Is just there anything else that you want to say? <laughs> no, just, uh, no. Uh, being a, I just, it's a wonderful family and friends that I have, what a great journey it's been. And none of those goals that I set either for service or about learning has proven to be anything less than uh, e eternally worth the goal, the goal that the goals that I set out to do little. And you can't know. And the, the thing is, in the beginning, you can't know when you said, I want to be a doctor. Why? Like, why did I want to be a doctor? I wanted to be a doctor because my pediatrician said how nice it would be to be able to go into people's home. I don't go into people's home. I didn't. Don't go into people's home. I didn't become a pediatrician. I went, uh, and it was, it changes all the time that you, you have a perspective at one point, but it's the only thing that's constant is change. Mm -hmm. It's changing all the time. So you're always reaching for, reaching for something. It's a little bit further on. Keep, keep plying on with the journey. Once the, if the goals are true, your life will be satisfying. Mm -hmm. life has a way of unfolding in a very different way than we ever imagined but in yeah, yeah, sometimes yeah. a more perfect way just before we finish off i wanted to jump in and thank michael again for joining us this episode was so much fun to do. I'm so grateful for the time that you spend sharing your words of wisdom. And I know that our listeners walked away learning a thing or two. Thank you again for listeners for tuning in and let me know if you know of anybody that would like to be on the podcast. Enjoy the end of this episode. Bye. And then the other thing you have to know is that I always give my cardiology fellows when I finish my two weeks, not only do I recite a different poem, uh, Yeats poem every day for two weeks, I tell them to give me early, middle, or late. And I recite it early Yeats, middle Yeats, or late Yeats poem. And the so other will thing, you recite one for us? One more as you as well? Yeah, I do one, one more for you. Oh, with this. Grandma, grandma's favorite. I haven't recited this poem in 10 years. So here we go. The Song of the Wandering Angus. I hope I can remember it. I went out into the hazelwood with a fire in my, in my head and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread. And when white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped a berry in a stream and caught a little silver trout 
when I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the fire aflame, but something rustled on the floor and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl with apple blossoms in her hair who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and through hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands. We'll walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon and the golden apples of the sun. And with Beautiful. that, Jeremy, I bid a fond adieu. <laughs>